Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to read from verses 2 all the way through verse 13. This is God's word. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your word and your spirit would uh, open our eyes to see deep spiritual truths and uh, draw us near to yourself and help us to, to know who you are and what your will for uh, our lives and this world is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, it kind of seems like a repeat of uh, the last couple of passages, but this is not a repeat passage. Uh, as I mentioned last week, Numbers, I think, is actually a very underrated book, and I encourage, if uh, you're ever interested in picking up a Bible and reading a book in the Bible, I actually like Numbers very much. I think it's a very uh, great book with a lot of spiritual insight. Uh, but as I also mentioned last week, it's not, it's not really, um, I think part of the reason why it's underrated is because it's called dumb Numbers, and the title is not a great title. The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness, which I think is much more accurate and tells us what the book is precisely about. Uh, it's, it's a book that's about Israel's journey in the wilderness and the transition that basically takes place in that journey. So not only the transition from a people out of slavery to now a people entering into the promised land, that kind of in-between moment, but also the transition from the first generation to the second generation and also transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And even though they are literally wandering in the wilderness, I think this wilderness period also serves as an apt illustration or metaphor for a particular kind of season in life. And last week I said the wilderness is uh, a liminal place. And if you never heard of that word, that's okay. But liminal basically means like in between. It's neither here nor there. It's not Egypt, but it's not the promised land either. It's in between. And the space in between can oftentimes be a space where it's disorienting, where it's challenging, where it's difficult. And during this season, you oftentimes hear voices of judgment and voices of cynicism and voices of anxiety begin to emerge. And it could be a frustrating season because you're longing to reach your destination. All you want to do is you want to get home, but you're not there yet. 
It's a little bit like being stuck at the airport, waiting to hear for when your flight will be ready to take you home. That's the feeling, that's the sense you oftentimes feel in these liminal uh, spaces or seasons. I think there's a lot to learn from Israel's season in the wilderness. Uh, and part of the reason I can say that confidently is because New Testament authors frequently point to uh, this season in the life of Israel for lessons. So Paul does it, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The book of Hebrews does it in Hebrews chapter 3. And they recall Israel's story of rebellion in the wilderness. And in both of those passages... Both authors are warning the church. Paul is warning the church to abstain from idolatry. The book of Hebrews is warning the church to resist hardening your hearts and falling away, but rather make every effort to strive into God's rest. And therefore, uh, the wilderness is a season of a particular kind of striving, one in which we strive to, to hold fast to our confession. I don't necessarily think the wilderness period is a time where we thrive. Uh, it's a time where we... Oh, it rhymes. It's a time where we strive, right? Strive to hold on sometimes, I think, is, is the call. And to hold fast to our confession, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and to endure this marathon of faith that is set before us. I think the church in the West is kind of in a liminal season as well. Uh, we're coming out of a season where Christianity was a very central and important fabric of society to now one in which Christianity is now on the margins or increasingly becoming on the margins of society. And therefore, whereas before there was a kind of um, maybe social benefit to being part of a church, the tide seems to be turning where people may have no clue or not really understand why anyone would want to be associated with Christianity at all. And no one really knows what the future holds, but I think that's part of what churches in the West are going to start to struggle with and start to experience. We really don't know what the future holds and the kind of stability, the kind of security that was once enjoyed, uh, we're, we're, I think, I could be wrong, but I think we're kind of now as a, uh, you know, a big C church, particularly just in the West, uh, we're probably entering a season where uh, we're not really sure what it's going to look like anymore. You know, as Christianity declines, uh, that, that's exactly what we're starting to see. We're starting to see Christian institutions close because there's not as much demand. Uh, we saw these two Christian colleges in New York City uh, close this past year. And I don't know what the numbers are, but it seems like all across all major branches of Christianity, so whether like Catholic, whether Eastern Orthodox, whether Protestant, uh, the number of people in the West that are actually going into ministry to become pastors is on the decline, so I suspect seminaries will start to struggle if they're not already struggling already. And statistically, I think more uh, churches are probably closing than being planted or being started. And for those of us, which I think is all of us, who care about the spiritual formation, particularly of the younger ones, of this next generation, uh, you kind of wonder, well, what is the spiritual climate going to be in the future when our uh, children, when these young ones become adults? And of course, again, we don't know what the future is going to hold, but it does seem like churches are now starting to grapple with what it means to be a church where Christianity is now no longer closer to the center of culture and society, but now one in which it is towards the margins of society. And then there's our little church, right, in, in this context of everything going on. We, too, are in a season of transition. We, too, don't really know precisely what the future holds, at least now we know we've secured a space and we can call uh, like a place uh, home on Sunday for worship. <laughs> but uh, at this moment, like we, right, in this moment today, I mean, like we don't, we're kind of in transition and we don't really have our own space yet. 
And uh, there's transition for the vote today in council leadership. And there's going to be a transition in pastoral leadership as well. And all of these transitions can be very disorienting, right? That's why I think numbers, especially to this season in the life of the church in the West, that's why in this season in the life of our church, I think that's why Numbers is such an important book for us to, to read and to glean the spiritual insights from. Because the Israelites themselves are a people in transition. They had an identity as slaves, and now they are moving towards having this new identity in the promised land to yet to be de- determined. Right now, they are just wandering sojourners. They themselves feel disoriented. They know God made a promise to them. There's a sense in which they don't know what their future holds as well, in spite of the promises that God has made to them. And not only that, but now they're going through other kinds of transitions, uh, namely because of their sin. And this is a story we saw um, last week. Old generation, uh, they're not going to enter into the promised land because they rebelled against God. The new generation would, even with respect to its leaders. Moses now is not going to lead them into the promised land. The mantle of leadership would be transitioned off to Joshua And now Joshua is going to ultimately bear that responsibility. And today, we're actually going to look at the story involving Moses that gives us the reason why God says he cannot enter into the promised land with the people. It's kind of a strange story. It's kind of a strange reason why God wouldn't allow Moses to go with the people. But when we understand what it's showing us, what it's teaching us, it reminds us of another danger in the wilderness that we need to be careful of. Uh, The Israelites, they are now in a place called Kadesh. Different place, same response. Verse 2, we're told this. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And then it says, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Very same thing they said in last week's passage, right? The very same thing. Why did you bring us here? It's not the same story. Different place, same reaction. Even though God brought them through the Red Sea, even though God had already provided them with water and food in the wilderness several times, they still grumble and they still complain and they still blame Moses for bringing them out of Egypt. I think it's easy to read about the Israelites and to kind of judge them a little bit for their lack of faith and their lack of composure. And maybe we say to ourselves, uh, wow, you know, if I saw God do all these amazing things, then I wouldn't be someone like that. I wouldn't doubt God. But... I suspect that we would, because doubt is always something we have to contend with. Uh, We are definitely a very forgetful people, and we easily become a kind of people that kind of say, like, what have you done for me lately, right? Even spiritually, with with respect to God. Uh, I was talking to someone uh, maybe a few months ago, and his child went through some, a very, very serious health scare, and He had like so many people, he had his church praying, he had so many people praying for his child. And uh, in a very miraculous way, like it surprised all the medical professionals, his child started to get better. And um, I think at the time, his his daughter's uh, kidneys, kidney functions were failing. Uh, They they thought like a kidney transplant was inevitable. But then all of a sudden, she started to get better. And it surprised all the doctors and all the nurses and uh, to this day, he, he says, he believes this firmly. He's like, it's all the prayers of the people that healed my daughter. God miraculously healed her. And so after this whole ordeal, I met up with him, and we were having lunch. And I was just asking him about it, and like, how was it, and like, all that, all that kind of thing. And he was like, you know, during that period, like, my, my faith 
skyrocketed. Like my, my trust in God like skyrocketed. I, I, I didn't doubt God at all. I was like, it's amazing that God miraculously answered and uh, healed my, my daughter. But then he said this. It's a little scary, though, how quickly I went from that place to kind of like going back to quote-unquote like normal to a place of like complaining and grumbling about like the small things in life again. And uh, he's like, that, that's a little bit scary, like how easily or how quickly like I could forget uh, what God had done. And I, I think that's actually the nature of, of faith for probably most of us, if not all of us. It's kind of like, yeah, there have been times where we've experienced God's presence and his grace in such powerful ways. And uh, it's like so powerful and it's so real to us. And then yet we find ourselves a short time later kind of going back to like normal and like grumbling and complaining again and living as if like God is not real again. And uh, that's the nature of doubt and sin and living in the wilderness. That's why we, it's something that we have to strive to do to, to fight doubt because it is within all of us. If you have ever felt like God had delivered you from something or provided you something that in that moment you desperately needed, I'm sure you know what that feeling is like of just kind of uh, soon after, like forgetting what God had done. And that's what the Israelites are experiencing over and over again. But here's like the amazing thing. Yet, God is still willing to provide over and over again here. Uh, I think we are conditioned to think uh, grace as like this, that grace has a limitation uh, because uh, truth be told, we oftentimes live in such a way where we give limitations uh, in terms of you know, what we're able to give others or limitations to our patience or limitations to our time. We live with limitations in terms of limiting others. And yet God seems to be willing to continuously provide for this rebellious generation. And so God shows up again at the tent of meeting, says to Moses, all right, Moses, this is what you're going to do. He says, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. By this point, Moses, understandably, has to be incredibly frustrated. I'm frustrated reading through numbers, seeing repeatedly how the Israelites are just doing the same thing over and over again. And as a leader of these people, how many times can someone endure being blamed for their circumstances in the wilderness? Uh, don't they know that Moses is the one who not only risked his, his own well-being to answer God's call to lead them out of Egypt— don't they know how many times Moses also interceded on their behalf to God, asking God to spare them, even saying, blot me out of the book of life, not them. And now they still want to grumble against him. Don't they know how devoted Moses has been to them? And so when he addresses them, he says this, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And I imagine Moses at this point is probably very fed up with the people. Imagine he's very tired of their nonsense. But I also imagine Moses might be getting tired of continually trusting in God. Because look at what he does next. Verse 11 says this, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. Now, if you kind of just read it and say, whoa, that's amazing, water, God provided water through his rock, and you kind of focus on that, you actually miss the point of the passage. You have to read it a little bit carefully. God tells Moses what was the command, to tell the rock to yield its water. Moses doesn't do that. He takes his staff, and he strikes the rock twice in order to yield water. 
All right, what's the big deal, right? God gave instructions. He didn't follow them precisely. They still got water. What's the big deal? Moses made a little mistake. Uh, why would this event prohibit him from going into the promised land? Well, when God rebukes Moses, this is what he says to Moses. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God basically says this, Moses, the problem is this. You didn't believe me, right? It's a problem of faith. You didn't believe me. Now, where does Moses demonstrate lack of faith here? Look again at what Moses at what Moses says. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Shall we bring water, right? We as in Moses and Aaron. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I thought it was supposed to be God is the one who's providing this water for them. I thought it was supposed to be God is the one who is giving them what they need. But here, Moses and Aaron seem to be taking a little bit of the credit and doing it their way. And that's confirmed because instead of speaking to the rock like God told them to do, Moses strikes the rock twice. Why would Moses do that? The text doesn't really tell us, but I imagine that maybe Moses' trust in God is waning a little bit. Perhaps Moses is going through his own disappointments as a leader. Maybe he figured God would keep his promise by making the Israelites a little bit less rebellious. And now for the umpteenth time, they're stuck in the desert for 40 more years, and they won't enter the promised land, and they're still out of water, and they're still complaining, and they're still blaming him. Maybe at this point, Moses is just fed up and maybe doubting whether God's way really is the best way. And I think herein lies the important lesson for people in the wilderness. I think the great temptation in long seasons of frustration, in long seasons of struggle, is to ultimately give up doing things God's way and to begin to say, I'm going to do it my way. God's way doesn't seem to be working. It's taking too long. I'm going to do it my way. It's where you start to think it's more about my talents or other people's talents or the resources or having more people or having more money or having more programs, more innovation. Maybe all of these things is what's going to yield spiritual renewal and revival rather than more worship, faithful worship, more repentance, more prayer, more meditation on scripture. To put it a simple way, it is to believe that in the final analysis, what we do is actually more important than what God does. And therefore, we say, I'm going to do it my way, but I think will yield the results I want to see. I think that's the lesson here in the wilderness. Now, I don't want to give the impression that what we do is irrelevant. Sure, it's, it's still important to serve and organize, set up chairs, host gatherings, actually share our faith and doing what we ought to do to serve and to love neighbor and to build up the church. But here's the thing. All, all that is is like, you know, chopping wood, laying, uh, laying the wood and, and making the campfire. Maybe, maybe we kind of like build the structure. But God is the one who ultimately has to, God is the one who ultimately activates the fire and brings light and warmth to the world. We just build the structure and we wait on him to come and do what only he can. Here's our challenge. Culture we inhabit is very secular. I think it would be uh, a little bit uh, naive to think that we are not shaped by a secular culture. 
Sure, we believe in the transcendent. Sure, we believe in a spiritual realm. But still, the default of the air we breathe around us is very secular. And therefore, inevitably, we are going to be shaped by that. doesn't mean people don't believe in a spiritual realm, but that's not our default. We are shaped by understanding the material world. We interpret and explain things based on what we see rather than what we do not see. And that in itself is not wrong unless it comes at the exclusion of the spiritual. How is creation going to be redeemed? How will all things be made right? It's not through human innovation or human will. I tell all these tech companies, right? I keep working on what you're working on, but at the end of the day, there's going to come a limitation of what you are actually able to achieve uh, as strong as that may be. Ultimately, creation can only be redeemed and people can only be redeemed by the grace of God. Just as God promised to give land to a people, God gives us redemption and salvation. He gave us Jesus. And it's his work that ensures we will receive life, we will receive salvation, and what our hope is in, we will receive resurrection. Yeah, that is the future promise. But God has also given us something else. His spirit. His spirit is alive today. His spirit is active today. Changing hearts, transforming lives, and activating our imagination to see beyond what we're able to see and to begin to see the way God sees. And that's what we wait for. And that's what we can't control. And we try to build a house, the structure to allow for that to happen. But ultimately we wait. And we wait for God to move. I don't know how many of you uh, are aware. um, But, you know, in the pastoral world, I would say, uh, everybody or a lot of people are really trying to kind of figure out how do we reach Gen Z, right? That's what everybody's thinking about. That's what everybody's trying to write about. That's like a tough nut to crack. How do we reach Gen Z? Uh, it's the hardest generation, it seems like, uh, humanistically speaking, to reach. The things that we thought did the trick in previous generations where you would have these great programs or you have great speakers or great facilities and great music, that doesn't seem to be doing it for Gen Z. A couple months ago, uh, there was some media attention regarding a kind of revival taking place at Asbury University. I think I had mentioned it in a, in a sermon a couple months ago as it was taking place. Uh, one of the students who participated in that revival, or who was there in that revival, wrote this like little essay eight months later reflecting on that experience and what took place there. And uh, this is what he would say. First, this is how he would describe himself before as a Gen Z Christian. He says this, quote-unquote, Christian pretty much means not any of those things above. And you know this, so you do your best. But honestly, none of, quote-unquote, those things sounds that terrible to you. They're sort of inevitable. Ultimately, it's hard for you to imagine being a Christian. So even in his imagination, he can't even imagine being a Christian in the future, living in this kind of world and culture. And, um, and then he says this, right? Well, I'll say this. It's, it's a problem when you can't imagine being a Christian. And think about it. Maybe there is a whole generation out there who can't even imagine being a Christian, let alone like just kind of like accepting it. They can't even imagine themselves as Christians in the world that they inhabit. But then something unusual happened at Asbury University where there was this kind of spiritual awakening amongst the students there. And this is what he says. The Asbury outpouring was unique. 
It wasn't about mass conversion, mass repentance, or mass missions. It seemed more like a soft and sweet song to the seekers of God, an invitation for us to radically retrain our attention, our worship, on the one who is worthy of us. If you want to know what really changed us, the answer is simple. God changed our whole imagination, and we live believing he will do it again. When you think about it, you know, the imagination is the hardest thing to, like, to change. Uh, you can't really manufacture a change in that. And then here's what happens uh, for the church. We get frustrated when we don't see the, the fruit of all of our efforts, right? That would be like Moses striking the rock twice. Man, I've been trying to be faithful for so, for so long. Uh, and these people are rebelling again. And I'm not seeing the results I want to see. Bam! Bam! I'm going to do it my way. Or we can just be faithful and obedient and wait. Wait for God to move. And again, waiting not meaning passivity. We continually live worshipfully, prayerfully, generously, faithfully, sacrificially, courageously. We continue to do these things. But in the end, we wait for the Lord to pour out his glory and his presence on people in his time. And I think... I could be wrong. I think that's not only the prescription for our church, I actually think that's going to be the prescription for churches in the West. I do believe one day, uh, not knowing when, God will reveal his glory, his presence. Uh, It won't be when we expect it, and it won't be when we control it. But he'll do it. He's done that over and over and over again since he first sent the Spirit. In America, revival in the 70s, maybe the 90s, maybe the 2000s, I don't know, maybe unheard of to us, maybe we don't even know about it, but it happens. I believe that that's what God will do. And I think that's what our, our children's generation needs too. That's, that's our only hope. So we pray for that. Let's pray.